0: We have made it to the end of the week, and I hope and pray that you've been encouraged. It's been a a great shot in the arm for Elizabeth and I and our family to be with you, and um, not to overdo it, but thank you for the opportunity uh, to come and to have these assemblies together, to have these times of fellowship, and uh, be built up in our faith together. And I'm going to close tonight with kind of a summation thought, of, of why we have chosen to talk about the topics that we've discussed and why practically this matters. And as we think about God and His faithfulness that we have stated almost every night um, since Thursday night, we've examined our life, our being, we've examined ourselves in, in a broken, sinful state in need of a Savior Uh, We've looked at the importance of forgetting that past life and embracing a new identity that Christ will provide. And part of that is so that we would be the people we need to be because that enhances the glory of God on this earth when we're fulfilling His will. But there's another part to that that's vitally important. And that is that we as God's people have a great mission to fulfill. We have something that He has charged us to perform. He has given us a very specific and dedicated work to do. And He certainly is faithful to uphold His end. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, God is faithful. And I love that statement, and it's, it's three words, and it's very simple, But it's a declarative statement. It's not a question or a hope or an idea. It's a statement of the definition of who God is in His character and in His being. He is faithful. And through that faithfulness, He has given us a fellowship with His Son, who is our Lord and our Savior. And all of those who share in that fellowship, I want to tell you, share in that commission or work that He's called us to perform. And I want you to start tonight with me in Isaiah chapter 6. Now Isaiah, being a prophet of God, had a commission of God. He had a charge. He had a job and a responsibility that he was called to perform. But there was a time in Isaiah's life and and through this process of him being willing to take on this great mission of going to God's people and being that mouthpiece of God, calling for them to repent and change their ways, That he wasn't confident. That he didn't feel he was worthy to be a partaker in the glory of God. And oftentimes when we think about Isaiah, we think about Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8, which reads, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. And we look at the response of Isaiah and say, What an amazing man Isaiah must have been to simply hear the call of God, of who will go for me, and Isaiah willingly throwing his hand up and saying, Lord, I'll be that one, I will go. And sometimes we feel discouraged because maybe we don't share that zeal or or we don't feel confident, as Isaiah felt, to be able to go and deliver the message that God had for him to deliver. I'll tell you, Isaiah had a very specific thing that happened to him prior to this that allowed him to have that confidence. So I want to back up in Isaiah 6, and I want to start there in verse 1 so that we put verse 8 in context of why was it or how was it that Isaiah was so willing to hear the call to go and to throw his hand up and say, Lord, I'll be the one that'll go. Starting there in Isaiah 6 and verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken off from the altar with tongs. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Then we get to verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Isaiah had had the opportunity to see something that changed his life. To have an experience that allowed him to go from a man who saw the throne of God, who found himself in this amazing vision, seeing the glorious nature of God and those angelic beings flying around the throne of God, praising God, crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. And Isaiah's first response is, Woe is me. You know what he was saying? He said, I don't belong here. (laughs) This is not for me. And he gives the reason why he didn't belong there. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. In essence, what Isaiah was saying is, looking and examining the glorious nature of a holy and righteous God, I can't dwell in the presence of Him. I can't come into that glory because I am not what He is. And I don't belong here. And he said, I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and no one is worthy to be in the presence of this being. But then what happened? One of those angels took a hot coal off of that altar that burned in the presence of God. And that angel took that hot coal and he touched it to the lips of Isaiah and he made a statement. What did he say? Your iniquity has been purged. Your sins have been what? Taken away. See, Isaiah was right in stating that he didn't belong in the presence of a holy God. But God provided a way for his sins to be forgiven. And once those sins were forgiven, notice the change that takes place within Isaiah. Because no longer is he hearing the call of God and who would go, and Isaiah didn't say, Woe is me, I can't take that message. But in fact, Isaiah said, Lord, I'm ready. So all the things that we've talked about, about our brokenness and the the wonderful forgiveness that we have in Christ is there to prepare us to go do something about that and to take that message to other people. And if we truly believe in the power of the blood of Christ, when that call comes for us to go share that message, we're just like Isaiah because we've experienced the same thing. The blood of Christ has cleansed us of our sins, and though we may not feel like it all of the time, we have the ability to come into the presence of a holy God because of Christ. And isn't that something we need to tell people about? Isn't that something this world needs to hear? Because without the blood of Christ, we're all undone, and we all have no hope, and ultimately there will be a great separation at the judgment. And there will be souls that will spend eternity separated from God. And if we care, and if we're concerned, and we want to do something about that, we have to be God's people fulfilling his mission and his call, just like Isaiah was willing to do. The psalmist writes in Psalm 117, two verses, Praise the Lord. Why? We could start listing the reasons we praise the Lord tonight, couldn't we? And we could spend the rest of this night listing reasons why we praise the Lord. But number one on that list is because our sins have been purged. And because we have that forgiveness of sins, he says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. That's why we open our mouths and sing. That's why we open our hearts and pour ourselves out to God in prayer. It's because he's worthy of that type of praise and adoration for all that he has done for us. And his household and his family or his church, his people, guess what? Just like Isaiah had a commission, God has given us a commission today. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6 says, But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. See, when we say the word church, that automatically creates something in people's minds. But here, the the writer of Hebrews describes that body of believers as a house, and and actually a better word is a household household. A family how many of us need a family how many people in this world don't have a family of their own many of you are familiar with the work that I do with a children's home in South Texas I'll tell you we take in children who don't have a home we take a children who are being removed from their homes because those parents who should have loved them and cared for them and nurtured them and taught them about Christ have abused them and harmed them and there's not a safe place for them to go and you know what we tell them you have a place with us and among God's people that should be our mentality is we're a place for the broken we're a place for those who are seeking something better And there's no strangers in this room, for we're all family of the household of God because of what Christ has done in bringing us together in this wonderful fellowship. And maybe you think you could live without that. I know I can't. And I'm blessed with a wonderful home and a family, but there's something about the family of God that brings a lot of encouragement. There's something about the family of God and the connections and the fellowship that we enjoy that is outside of even the physical family that we enjoy on this earth because guess what? I didn't get to choose my family. (laughs) But in the household of God, I'm chosen by him. And I'm told that I'm important. I'm told that I matter. And I'm told that I have a place to belong. And as his household, his family, we ought to want to expand that family. We can't just be content with what we have. We have to look at others who we know would be in great need of that type of blessing and share that with them. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 21, says, And having a high priest over the house of God, that household, that family, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession or confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Everybody knows verse 25, right? Of Hebrews chapter 10. If we were to continue this thought, what's verse 25 say? Go to church. When the doors are open, be there. That's what, it, is that, that's what I was told it said. What's it say? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It's important for God's people to be together. And we shouldn't turn our back and forsake the opportunities that we have to be together as God's people in worship, in fellowship, or any time. Because it's in those times that we are built up and encouraged to carry out a mission and a work. And God is faithful. I think of passages that describe the work of the church in the first century, and how Paul stated that he had planted and Apollos watered and God gave the increase. You know what that demonstrates? God's faithfulness. That when we work, when we labor, when we put in the effort and the time and the resources, and we're out doing the commission and fulfilling it, God's going to give the increase. Do you believe that? If we do, then guess what? We're not as concerned about results. We're just concerned about work and doing the work that we can do so that His glory is increased. And I want you to think about that great commission that we have tonight. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Some of the final words of Jesus to His closest disciples as he's about to ascend into heaven. Matthew records, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That is our commission. (laughs) That is the charge that's been left to God's household, to his family. This is our purpose. And sometimes we get distracted from our purpose. But the reason he has given us this is because he needs that word to go forth. And that's a daunting task. And we think about going into all the world and fulfilling this great commission. And before we become discouraged or think that we can't accomplish this, I want you to understand the bookends of these verses. Because the first thing Jesus starts out by saying is what? All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. You see, he's telling us to go, but he's telling us to go because he has all authority and power. And then notice what he says right after the charge to go and fulfill this great commission. He says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. You see, Jesus provides us his authority. He provides us the assurance that he will always be with us. And in between those assurances is a job to do. And has God ever asked his people to perform or do a work that they're not capable of doing? And you and I have to understand the importance of this work. In Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus calling his earliest apostles. It says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. What was their occupation? They were fishermen. You know what that means? They knew how to catch fish. Their livelihood depended upon that skill and that job and vocation. Every single day they went out to what? Fish. Jesus comes and says, you know what? Leave this and I will make you into something different. Haven't we talked about that this week? How we need to leave our past, whatever it is, and embrace a new identity. And Jesus says what? I'll make you fishers of men. You see, who is it that's giving us the assurance that they can perform the work? It's not us and our talent and our ability. It's a trust in Jesus. That if we trust him, he told them, I will make you fishers of men. And if we have that type of faith and trust in the power of Christ, guess what? We're going to allow him to make us into what he needs us to be to accomplish his will. And we submit ourselves to that and whatever talent you have, you utilize it for the betterment of his kingdom. And when I look out in an audience like this, I see talented people. These young people that we've had all this week, and a number of them I've worked with a couple other times this summer through meetings, they are talented young people, and guess what they're going to do with that talent? They're going to go and start a career at some point. And they're going to use that talent and that knowledge and all those things to build a life for themselves. Young people use the same talent to glorify God. Use the same talent to instruct and teach other people about the most important thing that's in your life. Utilize your talent and ability to enhance the lives of your brothers and sisters. The talent is there. It's just a matter of whether we're going to use it for God or we're going to use it for ourselves. And these men were given a promise that Christ would change them and make them into fishers of men. The Apostle Paul talking about his call to preach that gospel and, and how those that were um, there in the first century were supportive of that work and, and how he could do that ministry and work consistently. In First Corinthians 9 and 16, he says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul said, I, I have to do this work. You know, 20 plus years ago when Elizabeth and I were contemplating doing full-time evangelistic work. I had someone tell me, if you can do anything else, do anything else. But if you have to do this and this is the only thing that will drive you, this is the only thing you can do, then do this and the Lord will be with you. But understand, you don't have to be in full-time evangelistic work to contribute to the kingdom of God. Because all of us have a call to go. And your call may take you to Nigeria. Your call may take you to Mexico. Your call may take you to the foreign country of Harlingen, Texas. But you know, your call may take you to the street right behind you in Plainview, Texas. Your call may take you to your coworkers that you interact with on a daily basis. It may take you to the youth sports league where you can coach a team and impact lives of children for the cause of Christ and introduce families and build relationships and and share with them what's important. You see, we do all those things, but we do them not with a kingdom perspective. And what we have to do is understand that every interaction with every single person is an opportunity to teach and share the gospel. And if we do that, then we're just like the Apostle Paul who said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. So you may be sitting there and saying, me? (laughs) Really? You mean that's not just the elder's job, the deacon's job, the evangelist's job, those who are talented in public teaching? You mean I have a responsibility? Yes, you do. Because <laughs> I believe in evangelism, there are things that every single person can do. And I want to share those with you. The first thing you have to realize, though, is that you're a witness. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is, As Christ gave them instruction to wait in the city of Jerusalem for the giving of the Holy Spirit, and what would happen after that? He says, you shall receive power, and the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. What were they witnesses of? They were witnesses of their experience with Christ. They were going to be witnesses of the giving of this Holy Spirit. They were going to be witnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he says, when that power has come upon you, you're going to go, and you're going to be those witnesses, and what happened? There's a church of Christ in Plainview, Texas, a body of believers who collectively submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in the year 2023 because in Acts 1, these brethren fulfilled this command. And they went. And that's a powerful testimony. Of what? Of those witnesses who spread that message of salvation and you may be sitting there saying but what can I do I want to share with you four simple things number one realize what you have realize that you have been given the Holy Spirit when those individuals were baptized on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 there was an assurance given to them that if they would repent and be baptized what they would be saved and they would be given what The gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you have been buried with your Lord in baptism, He has given you His Holy Spirit. Is that Spirit powerful? You also have the Word of God. Is the Word of God powerful? Is the Gospel powerful? Romans 1 and 16, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And that message hasn't changed, nor has the power of the Word of God. And if I have the Holy Spirit and I have access to the Word of God, guess what? I have a lot that I have to realize I can utilize to go and preach to other people. And I can help people who are in need. Hebrews 4 and 12 assures us of the power of that Word. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's not you and me. That's the Word of God. And this week, as we've seen individuals respond, they're not responding to me. They're not responding to Jim. They're responding to the Word of God because it's the Word of God that convicts. And it's the Word of God that's powerful. And that same Word of God that convicts is powerful enough to save. And shame on us if we're not sharing that. (laughs) And if we've been given something so freely, shouldn't we share it? And we have to realize... What we possess. You also possess a, a wonderful relationship with the Son of God. Is Jesus your friend? I know we want to be careful because we don't want to lower Jesus in any way. We want to exalt him. And he's our Lord, he's our King, he's the mighty God. But you know what Jesus said about himself? He said he was willing to be a friend. John 15 and 15 says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You know who your best friends are? They're the ones who are transparent. You know what I mean by being transparent? You really know who they are. You know, sometimes you have acquaintances that'll kind of keep you at arm's length. You know a little bit about them, and you see them from time to time. And we say, oh, they're my friend. Are they really? (laughs) You see, a friend is one that is going to know everything there is to know about you that you want to open up and share with, right? I want to tell you about one of my best friends I ever met in my life. I was nine years old. And I was the biggest Texas Rangers fan that there was at nine years old. And the Rangers at that time had a gentleman who played for them named Nolan Ryan. And I want to tell you, Nolan Ryan is my friend. You know how I know that? Because at nine years old, I met Nolan Ryan. I shook his hand. And he put his arm around me. And I have the picture. Nine-year-old Chase with this big head and a little nine-year-old body. (laughs) And Nolan Ryan has his arm around me. And my parents took a picture You know what I did with that picture? Once we got it developed two weeks later, and (laughs) y'all don't understand that. I took that picture to school. You know what I told all my friends? I said, look at my friend. You know, this is Nolan Ryan. He's my friend. And I was willing to tell everybody about my friend, Nolan Ryan. You know what Nolan Ryan would have said about me? Who? Who? I was so willing to tell everybody about Nolan Ryan being my friend. And now I have the opportunity with the Son of God, who does know who I am, who does embrace me, who does love me, and who is asking me to go tell other people about our friendship and the friendship that He wants to have with them. And sometimes we won't tell people. What would keep us from telling people about Jesus? I think sometimes it's because we don't realize the wonderful relationship we really could have with him. Because he is a friend. Number two, after you realize what you have, you've got to care about souls. You've got to care about people you got to be able to look at people in whatever state of, of life they're in, no matter the circumstances, no matter the, the decisions they're making, whether they're good or bad, sinful, holy. And you still got to be able to look at them and say, I care about that person because they have a soul. And being a parent has changed that for me. Because I, I logically understood that, that every person was created in the image of God, but there's something about a baby that you hold for the first time, and you look into their eyes, <laughs> and you see past that face and those eyes, and you see something deeper. And I remember what I saw holding my children for the first time, I saw a soul. That now was my responsibility to teach and to to guide and to train and to raise so that they would one day know who the Lord is. That person that's going to go out tonight and get drunk, that person that's going to go out tonight and get strung out, That person that's going to go out tonight and commit adultery on their wife. That person that's going to go out tonight and do all manner of sin. At some point, a mom and a dad looked into the eyes of that being and saw a soul. Our task is to continue seeing that soul through the sin, through the pain, through all of that unrighteousness and still see a redeeming quality that needs to be saved. You know why that's so important to me? Because at, at some point, someone looked at me and saw past my sin and saw a soul that needed Jesus. Jesus. And they shared about their relationship with their friend Jesus and helped me. And my life is different today because of that. And it's not just because of those people. It's because of the power of God. And I fully acknowledge that. But we're the vessels who take that to those souls. But you've got to care about people. And if you don't care about people, you're not going to go win souls. And the Bible tells us that winning souls is serious and that those who win souls are wise. 2 Corinthians 5 and 11 says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and also I trust are well known in your consciences. You see, there's a day coming if you look at verse 10 prior to this verse, which talks about the terror of the Lord. What does verse 10 talk about? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give account of the things done in the right, whether they're good or bad. We're all going to be judged. And knowing that that judgment is coming, and knowing that there will be a separation, and that there will be souls who are separated from God forever and lost, knowing that we persuade men. we have that responsibility but you won't do it if you don't care about people when i say care about people i say care about all people you know there are some things you can do very simply in asking questions that will allow you to have conversations that prompt the opportunity to share and talk about jesus you just got to care enough to ask some questions I want to share some of those practical questions. Number one, you could ask, where do you go to church? You ever ask somebody that and it takes them five minutes to figure that answer out? If that's the case, they don't go to church anywhere. I'm just letting you know. Because if they go somewhere, they know where they go and they will tell you. And if they tell you, yeah, we go over here. Hey, that's great. Could we get together and talk about what y'all believe and, and share and talk about the Bible? Because if you're a church-going person, you ought to be interested in the Bible. I'm a church-going person. I'm interested in the Bible. We could find some commonality. We could learn from one another. It opens a door. You can ask them, do you like to study the Bible? And if they say, yes, hey, great, what time can we get together? They say, no. You say, well, why not? You can ask them, can I pray for you? How many of you know people that are in need of something? In our contacts and working in the communities we work in and your jobs, your, your friends, how many of them let you know, hey, I'm really having a hard time. This has happened to our family. We're struggling. All you have to do is, hey, can I pray for you? Because that will have an impact. And I know our congregation in Harlingen gets mocked and ridiculed sometimes because we have a prayer list. <laughs> and if you've ever seen it, it's a long prayer list. But you know what? We read those names every service. And that prayer might be 15 minutes long, just reading names on the prayer list. But we want people to know, when you ask us to pray for you, we're going to say your name before God. And I know we can do that privately, and I'm not exalting ourselves. I'm just telling you that's the reason behind it. And people, when they need something, know you're praying for them. That's going to open the door for you to help meet a need. And when you meet a need, that's going to open the door for you to tell them why you were willing to meet the need, and it wasn't because you're a great person, it's because you know Jesus. What about this? You could ask people, have you ever lied? Don't raise your hands right now. <laughs> have you ever lied? You can ask me, have you ever stolen? Have you ever cheated? You know what most people are going to say? Well, yeah, I've lied. Yeah, I cheated. I played Monopoly with my brother when I was nine years old. I cheated pretty bad. Have you ever stole something? Have you ever kept something that wasn't yours? Well, yeah. So, based upon those questions, I know a little bit about you. You're a lying, cheating thief. (laughs) You think you're a good person? And upon saying that, you can then say, you know, would you like some good news? It can help you not be a lying, cheating thief anymore. (laughs) Because at one time, guess what we were, lying, cheating thieves. But something changed. But we won't have these conversations. We won't ask questions. We won't be engaged in people's lives if we don't care about their souls. Number three, you got to be willing to share your why. I know we don't get up and share our testimonies because it's not about us. But I do believe we ought to use our lives and those examples to help reach other people. And we see that done throughout the pages of the Word of God. All those examples of faith. All of those times when Paul demonstrated his remembrance of his sin, he was sharing that not so people would worship him, but that they would see the power of God through his life. And we're given instruction in 1 Peter 3 and 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And ultimately, there's going to be the greatest commonality in our responses because it's always going to go back to the Word of God. And it's always going to go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how you got to that gospel, how you got to that word of God being introduced to you, is going to be unique to you. And there's power in sharing those experiences. And you and I have to be willing to do that. And number four, do something. (laughs) Figure out what your talents are and utilize them in this congregation. And I know we still have some visitors. I want to encourage you, if if you're questioning or wondering, what can I do to help the church? Go to your local elders, your deacons, your leaders, and say, hey, I want to help, what can I do? And they will have something for you to do. But here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to just be a rogue agent out there doing your own thing. Because your leadership has a purpose and mission behind what they're trying to do in your congregations. They're in Harlingen, Texas. I'm an elder now. (laughs) And there's two other men that we serve together as the eldership. And we plan out what we're doing and there's purpose behind why we do what we do. And sometimes other people want to do, but sometimes it doesn't fit within the scope of what our vision is of what the congregation really needs. And what we need is everybody on the same team pulling the same direction, working toward the same vision, the mission, of what it is we need to accomplish as a body. And when we do that, we're unstoppable. But we have to have that spirit of cooperation where everyone is contributing to what it is we're trying to accomplish. And that means everybody has to do something. Matthew 5 and 16, is we're instructed to, to let our light shine before men, that they may what? See our good works, not see us. See the good works and give glory to who? Our Father in heaven. We need to be busy. And every one of us has to do something. Now, in closing, we had a group of young ladies give a presentation earlier this week. And they talked about the importance of being salty. And being the salt of the earth. You know, being salty can be a negative thing. I didn't know if they realized that. So, but I know their point was we need to be the enhancement to the earth that God designed for us to be as his people. And you think about what salt is good for, and Luke chapter 14 says salt is good. So no matter what your cardiologist says, salt is good. It's what it says. I trust God. But if the salt has lost its flavor, now understand the context of this teaching. It's at the end of Luke 14, and prior to this, Jesus teaches a couple of parables that, that I get, I understand. He, he talks about the man who was building a, a building, and he says, you know, before you go build a building, you, you count the cost to make sure you have sufficient to finish the project, or, or else you build the foundation, you run out of money, and everyone mocks you because you didn't count the cost and didn't finish the job. I get that in pertaining to discipleship. After that, he talks about a a king who has an army of 10,000 soldiers, and there's another king with his army of 20,000 approaching, and that king with 10,000 has to do a very quick assessment to determine, can my 10,000 beat that 20,000? And if not, I better send an ambassador, and we better make peace, right? I get that. And what Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to be committed. There's no half-hearted discipleship with Christ. You're either with me or you're against me. And he made it very plain. And he's telling us, count the cost up front, because if you start, you've got to finish. But then he talks about salt. And it, I, I struggle with this, because listen to what he says. Jesus says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor. I didn't even know that was possible. But salt exposed to moisture or other extreme temperatures or elements, it begins to lose the very thing that defines it as salt. And it can't perform its function. And he says, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. I think I left King James out there on this one. But men throw it out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The tender, merciful, compassionate Jesus just said, If your salt that's lost its ability to be salt and accomplish what I need the salt to perform, you're not good for the land. You would mess up soil. Now, I have a good friend who has a master's in dirt. And he taught me a long time ago dirt is displaced soil. It's, it's essentially soil in the wrong place, <laughs> not doing the thing soil needs to be doing. And Jesus says if you're salt that's not having the savor or flavor that it should have, you wouldn't help the land, you would just get in the way. Then he takes it a step further and says you're not fit for the dunghill. Now, I don't have to explain in Plainview, Texas, what a dunghill is. Manure, a pile of manure that's used for what? Fertilizer. It's used to enhance the soil so that it can produce the things that you want to grow out of it. But Jesus says if your salt that's lost its flavor, you would mess up dung. <laughs> Is that harsh? (laughs) I've been called a lot of things in life. I've never been told I would mess up manure. That's what Jesus said. And I want you to, to think about that for a minute. If salt is good, and I want you to think about salt and what it does. You ever had popcorn without salt? You say, no, because you don't eat popcorn without salt. You ever had french fries right out of the fryer without salt? No, because if you take a bite of one, what do you say? Hey, pass the salt. Why? Because you need a little salt to enhance that flavor that makes it palatable. And here he's saying, we're the salt of the earth, and salt is good, but if it's not lost, it's... If it's lost its flavor, it's good for nothing. I want you to think about this. This little bit of salt can have a tremendous impact on whatever I put it on. Right? This little pile of salt. And this little pile of salt can accomplish what it's designed to do. And it can do what its master has created it for. Does it matter how big the pile is? But you know what we think in our culture, in our Western idea of religion, we always think more is better, bigger is better. And when we talk to people about our congregations and our churches, and, and sometimes we say, well, you know, well, we're, we're a small group, 30, 40 people. I know that's not y'all in Plainview, Texas. <laughs> But we talk to people in Harlingen and we tell them, hey, you know, we've got 75, 80 people. I say, oh, well, we've got 400 people. I'm like, well, that's awesome. But you know what I know about those 70 or 75? They're dedicated to being salt. And I don't care if it's seven people, if they're dedicated to being the salt, guess where I want to be? I want to be with those seven people being the salt of the earth. Because what the world says if we have this little bit of salt doing what it's performed and, and designed to do, but then we have all this unseasoned salt, and we pour that unseasoned salt on top, we get a bigger pile. And we look at that and say, well, that's got to be better. Not if it's unseasoned salt. Jesus said it wouldn't be fit for the dunghill. The reason we preach the gospel isn't to have large numbers of people filling congregations and sitting on pews. The reason we preach the gospel is we need more people being the salt of the earth. Because this pile of unseasoned salt won't be able to accomplish what the master needs for it to do. And my question to you tonight is, are you salt Or are you salt that's lost its flavor? And if you've lost your flavoring, we know someone who can restore you. We know someone who can give you the power to change that. And the message this evening is be the salt of the earth so that you go out and you influence people for Christ because we love to influence people. I'll debate you tonight. I'll try to influence you to be a Texas Rangers fan while Patrick is telling you to be an Astros fan. He's wrong (laughs) for doing that. We try to influence people to be on our side for all these different ideas and come join this club, be a part of this with me. Let's go out and persuade them to be a part of the family of God. Let's go persuade them to have their sins forgiven and join us in this mission of being the light to the world and the salt to the earth. And if you need encouragement or help to do that tonight, we're going to offer an invitation. If you've never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins to where you could join in on this great and noble mission, you're going to have that opportunity. And I want you to think of the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 16 where he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Do you trust Jesus? Then trust him tonight, that through your obedience and baptism, he can give you a new life, new purpose, new meaning, and a new mission. And if you're a brother or sister, but you've not been dedicated to that mission, you know you haven't been the salt, come tonight. Rededicate yourself. Ask for prayers. Get the encouragement so that tomorrow you go out and you make disciples. And if we can help you with that, you have an opportunity tonight to come have a seat on the front while together we stand and sing.